собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash seansrussiablog, or go to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's interview was recorded live as part of the University of Pittsburgh Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies Spring Speaker Series, Spying, Archiving, Reporting, Information, and Eastern Europe. The Soviet Union and its Warsaw Pact satellites were ideologically, materially, and geopolitically committed to aiding national liberation struggles in Africa during the Cold War. Communist states gave economic aid, provided weapons, and sent spies and military advisors. What was the relationship between the Soviet and Warsaw Pact policy and activities in African anti-colonial struggles, the role of espionage in the Cold War, and the influence of Soviet and Warsaw Pact activities on African movements? How does looking at the Soviet involvement in Africa change how we understand the Cold War? I turn to Natalia Telepneva for some insight. Natalia Telepneva is a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Warwick, specializing in the history of Soviet foreign policy, with a particular interest in Warsaw Pact interactions with African elites. She's finishing a book tentatively titled Cold War Liberation, The Soviet Union and the End of the Portuguese Empire in Africa, 1961 to 1976. I've also provided a partial transcript of this interview. I'll put a link in the show notes and on the podcast website. Here's Natalia Telepneva. So I thought a, a good place to, to start our conversation about your work in, in Soviet and Warsaw Pact uh, involvement in African li- national liberation uh, is to have you talk about and give us some general context about Africa and the early Cold War. What is the general situation in Africa in the, in the 1950s? So just uh, to answer your question, I think the most important thing to remember about this period, Africa in the 1950s, is of course it's a moment of uh, tremendous transformation um, in the continent at the time, of course, because of decolonization. Uh, some of you may know, of course, that at the end of the uh, Second World War, uh, the European colonial powers, the British, the French, the Belgians, they did not want to give up uh, colonial control uh, of um, in Africa. But by the end of the 1950s, uh, that uh, changes, uh, of course, uh, because, uh, because the costs are too high. So there are many reasons why they change uh, their policy. And uh, by the early 1960s, uh, most uh, African countries uh, proceed towards independence. There are negotiated settlements that are being discussed um, um, at the time. So by the mid-1960s, most of uh, African countries um, are basically free. 
So it's also important to note that, of course, this uh, process of decolonization, you know, doesn't happen evenly. It's not uh, a peaceful process. Uh, of course, in um, Kenya, the British are uh, stuck in a very brutal uh, war against the Mau Mau. And in um, Algeria, the French uh, are involved in a very violent uh, conflict uh, as well. But nonetheless, you know, the trend is towards the breakup of European colonial empires um, here. But of course, the, uh, the main exception uh, to this trend is Portugal, which still has control over uh, its colonies in Africa, Angola, Mozambique, uh, Guinea-Bissau, and Cape Verde. And the reason uh, why Portugal does not want to give up its control over the colonies has to do with the nature of its regime. Uh, at the time, it was controlled by an ultra-conservative dictator, um, Antonio Salazar, you know, who really believed uh, that uh, empire was fundamental to Portugal's place in the world, both politically and uh, economically. So by the early 1960s, uh, Portugal becomes involved, st starts fighting colonial wars in its colonies against the so-called national liberation movements. Um, and this is uh, what I write about. Uh, but just coming back a little bit more to your question about the Cold War scenario as well, I think it's still debatable to what extent the Cold War influenced this process of decolonization. You know? yeah. uh, on one hand, uh, of course, uh, European colonial powers uh, react uh, with a lot of suspicion to uh, Marxist groups that spring up in Africa and uh, you know, in uh, the aftermath of the Second World War. Of course, socialist ideas are very popular uh, and influential, including in Africa, uh, in the aftermath of the Second World War. So they really do clamp down on these Marxist reading groups and really on any groups that have um, seen to be influenced by European Communist parties. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, no, at the same time, uh, I think that the Cold War in general doesn't have much difference uh, to the process of decolonization because um, the Soviet Union and the United States are not particularly interested in the continent until uh, the uh, late 1950s. Mm -hmm. So I would say that uh, the colonial uh, the colonial powers still call the shots. Now, do do some of the African liberation national liberation movements and their leaders do? How do they understand the Cold War, though? How do they how do they look at the growing increasing tensions and conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union uh, from Africa? Well, in general, uh, third world leaders, and I think um, Africa here is not an exception, see the Cold War in very negative terms, at least the way they define it as a, this competition, increasingly uh, violent and potentially nuclear uh, right. competition between the two superpowers in very negative terms. So they obviously do not want to be a uh, part of a potential conflict. You know, they don't want their, pe their population to be subject to a potentially a nuclear holocaust. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, they, of course, see the Cold War very negatively and um, come up with uh, creative solutions for a new new world order in a, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, I think 
Uh, one of the most um, famous examples, of course, is the foundation of the non-aligned uh, movement, you know, which really kicks off with the uh, Belgrade conference in 1961. So I think uh, there is a lot, uh, th there is a lot of negativity coming, uh, f you know, uh, coming from African leaders about about the Cold War. That said, you know. Many African leaders and uh, leaders of liberation movements, they also often see the Cold War as an opportunity, right. mm -hmm. uh, as an opportunity uh, to uh, gain uh, support, to gain developmental aid, to gain cash, arms, and so on. So quite few of them start to play sort of Cold War politics, try to use uh, Cold War rhetoric uh, to gain international support, but also as a way to defeat uh, local rivals. Right. So I think it's important to note. This is not to say that uh, this is not to diminish the importance of the ideas of many of these African leaders, right? And liberation right. movements. Many of them uh, at the time are very much inspired by socialist ideas, by Marxist thought, and many believe that uh, basically socialism provides provides a way for true national liberation. Now, uh, the Soviet Union has been involved with, through the common turn in the 1920s to a, a less extent, but particularly in terms of Africa, there's a large presence or a larger presence of the South African Communist Party and the involvement of the common turn. But then policy towards Africa kind of cools off in the Stalin period. And underneath with Nikita Khrushchev, um, he really starts to turn more toward the third world and to pay more attention to national liberation movements in the third world more broadly. This is kind of a renewal. Um, so what, what were some of the Soviet policies under Khrushchev as, they made, as he made this turn toward the third world into Africa in particular? Well, I think Khrushchev uh, is a very important figure here, as, you're, as you've obviously rightly mentioned. And I think the time and place here is important because, of course, this turn towards the third world comes at the moment when the Soviet Union itself is undergoing a moment of uh, tremendous change, right? After mm -hmm. Stalin's right. death, uh, and of course, which starts off uh, a process of uh, destalinization mm -hmm. and partial uh, liberalization in, uh, in the Soviet Union. So I think Khrushchev, uh, being a shrewd politician, realizes that he can really use uh, this moment uh, of decolonization to gain new allies for the Soviet Union. But at the same time, and I think this is a point which you know gets ignored, I think he's genuinely quite optimistic mm. about the prospects of socialism in the third world mm. uh, in Africa. So I think he believes that it's Soviet duty to support uh, these um, African leaders, to support anti-colonial movements. Uh, so I think he, uh, he, he has the sense that there is a duty that the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet Union um, should have. So in terms of policies, uh, he starts um, providing uh, developmental aid to African leaders. And it is at this point uh, that the Soviet Union starts giving cash and arms um, and training to um, anti-colonial movements, uh, of course, the ANC and the Portuguese anti-liberation movements as well. Now, but so he doesn't necessarily see, say, Soviet involvement 
in Africa as merely part of a Cold War effort. This is also part of the kind of renewal of the Soviet Union's revolutionary roots and mission or where, where does the where does his where does the Cold War intersect with the the Soviet effort to you know aid and supply national liberation movements? I think I think he sees um, I think it would be incorrect to see it in purely uh, pragmatic Cold War terms for him. I think definitely his world worldview um, is focused on the global mission of the Soviet Union to potentially spread the revolution. Mm -hmm. But I think he believes it can be done, at least initially, by peaceful means. Mm. You know, he even says, you know, um, in India, you know, let's compete, but let's compete uh, without war. So I think uh, to him, um, it's it's part of the broader the broader mission of the Soviet Union, but at the same time, him being a shrewd politician, mm -hmm. he sees uh, also it as beneficial to Soviet prestige uh, in the world as well. Now, a lot of your your work focuses on the role of Soviet and Warsaw Pact intelligence services in aiding African liberation movements. Um, and, and the general internationalization of some of these national liberation movements. Um, so can you paint a picture of the larger context of Soviet intelligence in this period? It's really important to understand that there is no Soviet intelligence presence in sub-Saharan Africa until the 1960s, at least that we know of. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important point uh, to make so before the 1960s, uh, there is a quite an active residentura or you know KGB station uh, in Cairo, uh, which reports uh, quite actively about events surrounding the Suez crisis and so on. But uh, there is very little presence elsewhere. You know? So and this is important in the context of Soviet policy in Africa because. Uh, there's very little expertise in general mm. on the African continent. Very few people speak any African languages, uh, with the exception of a group of um, experts uh, at the University of uh, Leningrad. So there's very little uh, expertise, there's very little presence. Uh, this starts to change, I think, is a really, really important moment in 1960. And this had to do with the Congo crisis, mm -hmm. uh, of course, and this had to do with events uh, in South Africa where the African National Congress uh, is banned uh, at the time and, of course, uh, you know, after events in Sharpeville. So the Congo crisis, I think, really changes the situation. It is actually in 1960 that uh, the head of the KGB, um, Alexander Shalepin, who is at the time you know, a rising a rising star in the party uh, really realizes that, oh no, we do not have uh, much presence in sub-Saharan Africa. So it was actually him who uh, started to expand the Africa desk um, at the KGB's first directorate. And it is in 1960 when a small group of intelligence services go to the Congo to support Patrice Lumumba mm -hmm. and you know, the Congolese government there. But again, you know, this is just to emphasize my point, uh, we cannot speak of any large Soviet intelligence presence mm -hmm. um, at the time because there are only a handful of people who go, who go there. 
Um, this starts to change, of course, in the 1960s as more and more Soviet embassies are opened in sub-Saharan Africa. And I argue that in a way, uh, Soviet, um, the Soviets use secret intelligence as a cheap weapon mm -hmm. to fight the Cold War. You know, it's right. really sort of Cold War on the cheap. Right. So let's just take for a second the Congo story. Uh, so the Congo, of course, is uh, is really, really important uh, country in this period. And it's um, there that you have a very important crisis uh, in 1960, which becomes um, internationalized very quickly uh, here. So the Soviets, the Soviet intelligence uh, team, so to say, first come in to support Patrice Lumumba, but very quickly uh, they're kicked out of the country because of the coup, mm -hmm. which uh, you know, actually overthrows Patrice Lumumba. And, um, but, but they continue to use uh, secret intelligence to try help uh, those who support Lumumba. Uh, and I think this is uh, a weapon of the weak in a right. way, because uh, Soviets and Khrushchev in particular realized very quickly that there's very little they can do to help uh, Lumumba and his his uh, his followers, mm -hmm. and they did not do not want to risk uh, global war right. uh, over the situation. So they continued to use uh, this um, secret intelligence to try to influence the situation in the country. Now, ultimately, unsuccessfully again, but I think it, it is really a weapon of the weak. Now, this is actually really interesting because if they didn't have uh, any foreign intel, if they didn't have any intelligence presence in Africa, they're really building up uh, intelligence, but also knowledge about Africa in general in the Soviet Union. So it's interesting that this also co coincides with the development of African studies programs in the, in the Soviet Union. You have in 1964, the opening of the People's Friendship University. So you have students from the third world, a lot from Africa coming to the Soviet Union. Um, so what role do, do some of the academics party officials and others that are under in the kind of middle management of Soviet foreign policy and knowledge about the third world, what role are they playing in, in the process of uh, reaching out to African nations? I think that they're really, really important. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're very important because uh, Africa is really not high on the agenda <laughs> for the for the Soviet Politburo, you know, and right. for the likes of Leonid Brezhnev, right? Uh, the, he and the Politburo focus on other more important areas in the world, like Berlin, like relations with the United States, uh, maybe China. Mm -hmm. So uh, liberation movements in um, Southern Africa are really not uh, high on, on their agenda. And uh, this is uh, why I argue these so-called middle middle ranking officials mm -hmm. uh, that that you've uh, you're talking about uh, acquire a particularly important uh, crucial role in dealing but also ultimately in Soviet policy towards towards the liberation movements right. so it is really a kind of interdepartmental strata of, of of these officials so these are diplomats on the ground uh, these are spies on the ground uh, both you know KGB and GRU uh, these are Soviet international journalists um, mm -hmm. as well mm -hmm. and um, I also 
also think that an important role is played by members of the international department mm. uh, the of the central committee who really are the men they're, they're all men uh, again important to note mm. uh, who really meet and greet these african leaders when they're in moscow who go there on tours who process their requests for assistance and who ultimately acquire really important role because they're really the ones who are knowledgeable about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And um, it is their recommendation that then become accepted um, at uh, higher levels. Right. Um, actually, I think that People's University was opened in 59. It was, yeah, 59. Yeah, I made a mistake there. Now, what's interesting, though, what, what the way you're addressing these issues is that our general understanding of the Cold War and, and, and Soviet support for national liberation struggles tends to be, we tend to only think about the Soviet Union itself. And one of the, your focuses is the role of Warsaw Pact states, which I have didn't know and had no clue about. And so what was the role of Warsaw Pact countries' involvement in African national liberation struggles? What was their role in all of this? I think their role was really, really important. Mm -hmm. uh, the Warsaw Pact states, they really become involved um, in the third world, again, in the 1950s. And this had to do uh, partly with this transformational moment in the Soviet Union, when uh, Khrushchev turns to, towards the Third World, but also when he tries to reshape relationship with um, communist parties in uh, Eastern in Eastern Europe. Mm -hmm. So Khrushchev actually wants uh, his you know, Warsaw Pact allies to become more involved mm. uh, in the Third World, uh, more general. But at the same time. Uh, many Warsaw Pact uh, states, uh, they're quite eager to take him on uh, on this offer because um, they're also interested uh, in a much more active policy in the third world more in general uh, for their own reasons, hmm. for economic reasons, for political reasons, uh, for prestige and so on. And again, in the same way that uh, the Soviet Union has a few cadres who are former Comintarnians, right? Mm -hmm. In Eastern Europe, you also got a few people who have his this awareness and this history right. of engaging uh, with, with the Comintern. So they become quite actively involved uh, in, uh, in the third world. But of course, it depends from country to con country. Right, um, right. I look a lot at uh, Czechoslovakia, uh, which uh, becomes a really, really important and significant player in Africa. Uh, supplying uh, weapons, uh, training, um, etc., to the liberation movements and to African leaders. So uh, I think they do play a really, really important role, and it's been somewhat underestimated. And, and you, but you also emphasize the fact that there's also a lot of agency on the part of African liberation leaders to approach, say, the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact country. So there, as much as there is a, a pull of, you know, Khrushchev into the third world, there's also a push, there's also a pull into, do, do African liberation leaders, do they approach the Warsaw Pact countries independently or do they always have to go through the Soviet Union? How does that relationship work between these three 
different uh, players? This is really this is a really good question, mm-hmm. and I think this is the really fundamental because I always always uh, emphasize the role of African agency mm-hmm. uh, in the story because ultimately at the end of the day it's the African leaders leaders of the liberation movements who approach uh, international donors mm-hmm. you know who really lobby for support. Uh, and who often use, um, I would say, Cold War rhetoric to help them uh, in this process. So the, it's really them uh, who who is driving this process. Right. Um, as for uh, the relationship um, between the three, this is uh, one of the least areas that is least known, I think, to least kind of discovered. But in general, I would say that, yes, they absolutely have independent relationships uh, one would say with with Moscow uh, and with you know with Czechoslovakia, the right. GDR, and so on. Uh, the Soviets, of course, they try to coordinate this mm-hmm. uh, this aid, this support on on many levels. You know? But um, it's debatable how much they're effective in doing so. Mm. But in general, uh, they had very very independent relationships with uh, with different countries, and often much better relationships, say with the GDR or Czechoslovakia mm. than with the Soviets. Uh, because, of course, you know, uh, these are often much smaller countries and they take much greater care. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, these African leaders who come, you know, who come, when, when they come to Warsaw or East Berlin and so on. It, let's, let's talk about uh, one particular example that you, you've examined, and that is the role of, of Czech intelligence in uh, Ghana during during Kwame Nkrumah's rule. So what what specific things did Czech intelligence involve themselves in around Nkrumah and then of course after he was overthrown? Well, this is um, this is a very peculiar story <laughs> that's been uh, hidden uh, from uh, f- uh, from us uh, in the archives um, until until recently. And the context here, of course, is uh, the collapse of uh, Kwame Nkrumah, who is overthrown in 1966. And uh, what we didn't know before and what we know now is that uh, the Czechoslovak intelligence, they try to sponsor a leftist, the way they see it at least, mm-hmm. a leftist uh, counter-coup uh, in Ghana after Nkrumah is overthrown. So. And it's not clear exactly how much the Soviets are involved in the story. No, the Czechoslovak side of the story is known much better. Uh, but um, there's a sense that, of course, both the Soviets and the Czechoslovaks tried, at least initially, to restore Nkrumah uh, to his, as they saw it, rightful position as the president of Ghana uh, after 1966. But again, here, just to reiterate this point about African agency, uh, it's not necessarily the Czechoslovaks who come up with this uh, big, uh, big operation. They are at first approached hmm. by members of the uh, local opposition, uh, and uh, you know they get this proposal, you know, to uh, support this counter coup, mm-hmm. um, and then they quite eagerly, you know, start start supporting this almost you know imaginary, I would say, I would say mm-hmm. coup, and again. Uh, they they are they are completely unsuccessful uh, in their attempts. Uh, so it again, I think the story uh, shows that 
or they are quite eager to engage in this so-called active operations in Africa and try to do so and come up with these very grand plans. Uh, but they're very often quite unsuccessful. And it's really uh, about, you know, uh, local um, local people on the ground uh, that really that really matter and local politics on the ground that right. really matters. So, but but what are some of the things they're concretely doing? Are they funneling weapons? Are they training insurgents? Are they providing just material aid in terms of funding? Or are they actually putting agents in the ground? Like what? what in, on the operational sense, how is say Czech intelligence? trying to, you know, develop this, as you say, imaginary can't counter coup, but they're they're trying nonetheless. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they try, they see themselves in quite big terms. Now, they uh, they see themselves as kind of driving this operation forward, connecting people, uh, but also supplying weapons. Mm -hmm. um, at, uh, you know, and they come up with plans how we can, you know, supply weapons uh, to the supposition group and so on it's not clear how much actually uh, they receive in the end mm. but um, at the same time uh, they demand from their sort of local uh, uh, local um, allies um, to come up with you know a viable plan right they can right. Uh, check discuss and and help you know move forward mm -hmm. Um, and then again, that that doesn't really work out. Mm -hmm. How did the Soviets and the Warsaw Pact uh, countries regard? How did they how did they treat and deal with uh, African nationalism, particularly around say Pan Africanism that Kwame Nkrumah uh, advocated? Well, I think in general, uh, at least in uh, public rhetoric, uh, the Soviets supported um, non-alignment, um, and they in general supported. Uh, the Pan-Africanist project yet, and I agree with you when you're saying that um, there was a tension there because uh, the Soviets believed, especially in relation to Krumah, that his Pan-Africanist dream was, uh, was really unrealistic and it was just a dream. And especially uh, once Nkrumah is overthrown, uh, they consistently uh, recommend that he abandon for a time, you know, his Pan-Africanist dream. And of course, this is the time when he writes his famous book. Um, and uh, they believe that this he is completely out of touch and that what he should focus on uh, is uh, armed struggle in Ghana and to go back to Ghana, basically, and um, get back uh, and, you know, and re re regain power, basically. So they believe that his, um, his Pan-Africanist dream is completely unrealistic at this point. Uh, so uh, this is something that comes through a lot of the conversations that they have <clears throat> with with him via Cabral, actually. Yeah. So Cabral is somebody who acts in a way as a liaison uh, with the Czechoslovaks and, and so on. So Cabral is also a very practical man. He also believes that instead of writing the books, you know, Nkrumah should focus on, you know, the struggles, struggles in Ghana. What about the, the role of the Chinese and the Sino-Soviet split in the 60s? Uh, was there any rivalry in terms of trying to have influence over African liberation movements between, say, the Soviet bloc and the Chinese? This was, of course, huge. Now, this, uh, the Sino-Soviet rivalry uh, plays a huge role in Soviet decisions uh, you know, when it comes to liberation movements. But I think, and this is where I disagree with some of uh, some of others um, historians have written about this, is that it really is quite case specific. So in the case of East Africa, 
and um, Soviet support for free limo, liberation movement uh, for Mozambique. Uh, they are very aware about China's influence and presence in East Africa. And of course, China is really at the center uh, of their attentions. Um, elsewhere, um, you know, in the case of the Cabral and PAIGC, uh, they're motivated by other things. So I think China is a really, really important factor, but um, it's not the only factor um, that the Soviets have in mind uh, when supporting uh, this or that liberation movement. So it really is very case specific, and I think it's driven much more by uh, the relationships, specific relationships they have with the African actors, African leaders, um, liberation movements, and so on. Much more complicated picture, I think. How did the the Soviets decide what movements to support, what African states that were of their their interest? Did they, what did they discriminate against, say? some movements over others? Like, for example, were they involved in, say, Kenya in the same ways they were involved in the Congo or in Ghana? Or did they f focus on, were there particular places which they focused on? Yes, absolutely. So the major classification that actually features in a lot of documents uh, of the International Department uh, classifies uh, uh, those states that receive preference as states of so-called socialist orientation. Mm -hmm. So this was a slightly loose term uh, that uh, was uh, <laughs> that was um, kind of worked and um, in a way invented by uh, the by the Institute of African Studies in a way, mm -hmm. uh, but also by in a way Soviet officials um, and. Um, <clears throat> it basically uh, classified states that are going uh, in um, in the direction of socialism and who had accepted certain elements of uh, non-capitalist development. You know, the, yet this was another really important term that uh, they used. So, of course, and in the memoirs and so on, there's a lot of criticism about how uh, how this was, um, how these classifications were made, and how much these African leaders actually, how how actually socialist they were. You know, yet uh, these classification existed. So, for example, um, you know, Congo Brazzaville, right, was for the longest time um, a state of socialist orientation. But um, at the same time, I think, and this is not something that comes in the literature a lot. Uh, the Soviets also believed that um, you could uh, also make an influence via uh, important people within the parties and that uh, you could uh, basically um, influence the political situation of a particular organization by working through people who are friendly to the Soviet Union and who in a way have some uh, socialist ideas. And this is what actually explains, I think, partly your question, because um, what happens in Kenya is a very intense uh, local rivalry uh, between um, different politicians, Tomboya, um, uh, Adinga Adinga. Of course, um, the Soviets first, you know, they do not classify Kenya as you know, country of socialist orientation, but they're very interested in Kenya, right? But, and initially, they believed that Odinga Odinga may come up on top. And that's why they provide substantial aid and assistance to Kenya. 
Uh, once uh, Adinga Adinga, of course, is no longer part of the political establishment, right? Uh, that stops, that changes. So I think um, it, it's more important to understand how they see the political elite. And until recently, uh, we thought that um, their relations of what's going on in these countries was, uh, was very bad, basically, very basic. But I think now, given some of their little bit more documents are declassified, um, it's apparent that they did have a quite good knowledge of what's going on, uh, at least internally um, in these countries. They may have not um, come with the, the right kind of ideas about it, but they knew quite a bit what's going on often through these clandestine conflict contacts that they had uh, to a number of people, right? So I think it's a, it's a complicated uh, situation. And uh, some of these cases that are seem to be uh, pragmatism, for example, Soviet relations with Nigeria, uh, actually underneath it, there's a case of the Soviets believing that there is somebody within this particular organization that may come up, come out on top. That doesn't always, it's not always the case, of course, that doesn't okay. always uh, happen, yeah. but um, there's, there's a lot of optimism, at least optimism, at least initially about, about this. Uh, so uh, at the same time, you know, this doesn't mean that if a particular country is classified as socialist orientation, that means that the Soviets are very positive or happy about what's going on in the country. For example, an important example is Guinea, right? The Soviets are extremely critical of Sikuturem's regime, and they do not like the man, you know, if to put it simply at all. <laughs> Uh, but they continue providing support to Guinea for this political reasons, seem to be still an ally in the region, despite a lot of problems over developmental aid and so on. Uh, part of it is, of course, uh, is that the Paijese and Cabral's movement is based uh, in Guinea. Um, so um, I think it's the story is, is more complicated. So um, I, I was I I'd like you to talk a bit about the Soviet and Warsaw Pact relationship with uh, Amiklar Cabral because he is one of the intellectual, really important intellectual figures of national liberation movements. He's a theorist, uh, Marxist theorist. And, and I was really intrigued the fact that Soviet and Warsaw Pact intelligence and, and are involved with him in many respects. So what is his relationship to the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union? You're absolutely right. Uh, Amilcar Cabral, of course, is a highly celebrated figure. Right. Uh, he is, um, I think, rightly considered to be one of the greatest African thinkers of the uh, 20th century. Um, he is also, of course, uh, the leader of uh, Paegisi which was um, the party for independence of Guinea-Bissau and um, Cape Verde, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, starts um, armed struggle in Guinea-Bissau um, in 1963. So the importance um, of, this, uh, of this relationship uh, has to do with Cabral's dilemma, and that is um, Guinea-Bissau is a small country in West Africa with very little uh, significance um, in the Cold War context. Mm -hmm. So uh, in a way, it's, it's not particularly interesting um, to, to, uh, to, to anyone, at least initially. So he really uses his, um, quite famously, his diplomatic skill uh, to 
uh, get uh, supplies to get cash and arms uh, from the socialist countries. And uh, a lot has been written about uh, Cabral's skill as a diplomat. But um, what I've discovered um, is that his um, kind of special relationship with Czechoslovak, with Czechoslovakia and with Czechoslovak intelligence. Mm. So Czechoslovakia actually is the first country uh, besides China uh, to um, give PAGC support, substantial support in weapons, and in cash and in training, military training. Uh, so partly this had to do with Cabral's personality. You know, mm-hmm. the Czechoslovaks are very much taken by him, you know, as, as many others um, in um, the Eastern Bloc. Yeah, he's a celebrity of himself. He's kind of a big, larger-than-life figure of the period. Absolutely. Yeah. And he's also seen to be, um, uh, of course, a Marxist in a way, in his views. At least that's mm-hmm. how he's perceived, you know, in, right. in the, uh, to have kind of strong leftist ideas. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, what we did not know previously is that Czechoslovaks considered him to be a so-called um, clandestine contact of uh, the Czechoslovak intelligence. Mm. So um, very early on, when uh, Cabral uh, just moved to Conakry, Guinea, uh, he forges this quite close relationship with the uh, member of the Czechoslovak intelligence services. Uh, he does not, not know that at the time. Of mm. course, we can't know what Cabral thought about this, right, you know, right. what he, he believed, he knew. But um, a, a year or so later, I know this, uh, this man, um, this Czechoslovak intelligence officer actually proposes to recruit uh, Cabral mm-hmm. um, as an unofficial, uh, unofficial um, clandestine, as they, as, they, as they described, clandestine contact. Um, of the Czechoslovak intelligence. Um, And uh, this is the kind of relationship that's, of course, um, very difficult uh, to um, put into a category. Hmm. But um, I say that although Cabral does enter in this kind of relationship with the Czechoslovak intelligence because he needs the aid, right? Right. Uh, but he is very much somebody who drives that relationship. So actually, he benefits more uh, from Czechoslovak aid and support mm-hmm. um, than uh, the other way around. Right. So I think it also has to do with people's jobs, right? How people's <laughs> jobs works. This uh, this person on the ground, this officer, he claims big victory of right. recruiting Cabral, but in reality, you know, it's much more complicated than 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 yeah. that. The Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact are involved in Africa to a certain extent. Um, what what happens to the relationship once this period of national liberation is over? And what are some of the the what is left over of that relationship with Africa? Um, you know, even up to today, is there still certain ties that have that have lasted? Whether it's between individuals or or even with the states, where does the the relationship between Africa and the former, you know, Warsaw Pact and the former Soviet Union stand? This is an, an excellent question, but also the answer keeps changing, right? <laughs> right. So you're we're making it at a good time when there is some developments on this front. Right. I think uh, what happens in the 1990s, of course, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that a lot of these uh, links and relationships very quickly, almost overnight, are gone. Yeah. You know, they disappear. 
So um, in the same way that you know the tremendous change in in uh, the former uh, Soviet Union and Russia, there is almost a complete breakdown mm. of of these ties. But I think, and this this can sound a little bit uh, perhaps controversial, is that although uh, the Soviet model of development and socialist ideas are seen by many to have been a failure mm -hmm. in Africa. I think a lot of people uh, in Africa still have a respect in a way for for the Soviet military technology. Mm. Uh, because um, after all, for many people uh, during the Cold War, uh, the AK, right? The, right. Kal the Kalashnikov automatic rifle was a symbol of liberation. Uh, so with, they fought you know, with Soviet weapons uh, for liberation of their countries in, in Angola, in Mozambique, uh, in Guinea-Bissau. And there were, many were trained as well in the Soviet Union. So there is this understanding, this acknowledgement that Soviet military technology still has value mm -hmm. and that, this, uh, that Russians still have this um, that they can teach, uh, uh, they can train modern armies mm. and modern security services. So maybe this partly explains why there's been a sort of resurgence yeah. of uh, Russia's um, involvement uh, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, mm -hmm. uh, for example, in uh, the Central African Republic. Right. right, this recent incident with mercenaries. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, absolutely. And you know, there's still a presence there. Uh, and it, it is uh, fundamentally a military, a military presence. Right. Right. So I think there is a lot of, there's still uh, legacies. And I think this is not a final story. This is a changing story as well. And finally, you know, you're, you're looking at the, and, and a lot of scholars are starting to look more, focus more at the Cold War and the periphery, like looking at it in terms of a global conflict, but putting emphasis on the third world and East Asia, Latin America, et cetera, and how these, the periphery players factored into this, you know, binary struggle, like the break the binary of the Cold War. And what you're doing is actually really interesting because you're looking at it from the periphery of two places. You're looking at it from Africa on the one hand and the Warsaw Pact on the other. So how does your understanding of the Cold War has changed by looking at it from these two more peripheral perspectives? I'm definitely of the school uh, who puts a lot of emphasis um, on the peripheries mm -hmm. and the Cold War and uh, who believes that peripheries are important because they uh, tend to be uh, uh, tend to acquire Im important significance um, very quickly you mm -hmm. know so these liberation movements uh, that uh, that are not that important for the Soviets suddenly say what happened in Angola uh, suddenly uh, when there's a change of situation suddenly they become really important and a hot spot in mm -hmm. the Cold War but I do believe that it's really important to integrate um, the role of so-called peripheral actors, right? Mm -hmm. uh, both um, uh, African actors, but also Warsaw Pact, uh, smaller countries in Eastern Europe uh, into, into the story. Mm -hmm. I think uh, we can understand these relationships uh, much better in that way. That was Natalia Telpneva, a British Academy postdoctoral fellow at the University of Warwick, specializing in the history of Soviet foreign policy with a particular interest in Warsaw Pact interactions with African elites. She's finishing a book tentatively titled Cold War Liberation, The Soviet Union and the End of the Portuguese Empire in Africa, 1961 to 1976. 
I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB Podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight. Yeah.